0: Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer.
1: Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer. And with me today, I have a special guest that I actually went to college with, Dr. Dr. Jared Stroud. He uh, graduated from the University of Toledo College of Pharmacy with me, but also from the University of Toledo College of Medicine. So he's like a double rocket fan for that. He also works as a geriatrician at Ohio Health. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Dr. Stroud.
0: Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here. This is my first ever sort of syndicated podcast, so (laughs) I um, (laughs) am... So I'm excited to be here and excited to talk about this topic. I appreciate you having me on.
1: Yeah, no, I. I you kind of shared some thoughts on Facebook, which is kind of one of those things that obviously people can throw out whatever they want in the universe. But you, and I know you obviously, have a very unique like skill set and knowledge set with this because you do have dual doctor degrees, uh, obviously, in pharmacy and in medicine and in the older population, which is the drug we're going to talk about today, which is the brand name's Adahelm or Aducanumab. I might butcher that, but that's the best way I can say that. <laughs> I think
0: you got it pretty right. All
1: right, good. Thanks for the confirmation there. But yeah, so this is like the perfect drug to you to kind of share your thoughts about, given all the attention it's got recently. So, what are some of your thoughts about the FDA just approving this new medication for Alzheimer's disease? Yeah,
0: so you know, part of my job is, as you mentioned, as a, as a geriatrician with Ohio Health, and really, I see patients with dementia. Alzheimer's disease, other types of dementia, kind of on a, on a routine daily basis. And so I deal with this quite a lot. And so not surprisingly, when this drug, uh, aducanumab, was, was kind of on my radar as something that was kind of coming down the pipeline, and I sort of had been hearing about it, and I sort of knew that this June date, the FDA was kind of coming up in terms of approval. And so the story of the drug is kind of very interesting. And I think, you know, I think it might be helpful if I took maybe just a couple minutes and, and sort of kind of talked about how this drug sort of even came to be and some of the controversy behind it so that, you know, we're all kind of on the same page, if that's okay.
1: Yeah, go for um, it. I think that's important. So
0: aducanumab, you know, for people who have not heard of the drug, is a monoclonal antibody that, that targets the beta amyloid protein that is felt to be kind of like, one of the pathological parts of alzheimer's disease it's sort of unique in that the drugs that we have to date for dementia and alzheimer's disease things like older drugs like denepazil or aricept or memantine which is an those drugs do not really i, I described them to my patients and family members as, as sort of like symptomatic treatments of alzheimer's disease they don't really target sort of the underlying pathology of, of the disease. And so much like in cancer treatments that have really developed over the past few years, the, the heavy research has gone into kind of these monoclonal antibody drugs that are targeted towards the underlying pathology of Alzheimer's disease in the hopes that we can get some sort of like, you know, actual cure or treat clinical symptoms of, of Alzheimer's disease. So this drug underwent like kind of a phase one study that basically was kind of like a proof of concept study. You know, does it clear beta amyloid from the brain? That study really showed that this drug is, is super effective at clearing beta amyloid from the brain. So they took patients. They did a scan. The scan showed they had a lot of beta amyloid buildup. They gave them aducanumab. And sure enough, like the beta amyloid was cleared from the brain. This sort of got this drug in sort of this accelerated pathway as let's go right to kind of phase three studies and let's see if the clearance of this beta amyloid produces clinical improvement in patients who have Alzheimer's disease. So it's important to note that there have been some previous drugs like this that have also kind of cleared beta amyloid from the brain and have not really shown much in the way of clinical benefit for patients. Basically, they they created two very similar trials, uh, phase three trials for this drug. One was called Emerge and uh, the other was called Engage. They were very sort of similar phase three trials that were kind of run in parallel. These were patients that had been diagnosed with something called mild cognitive impairment or very or very mild symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And they were essentially given either a low dose uh, a placebo, a low dose of aducanumab, or a high dose of aducanumab. The trials were supposed to go for 18 months, and they were going to look at and see if there was you know, clinical improvement in these patients. Well, that all sort of changed. In March of 2019, Biogen, which is the company that produces aducanumab, they sort of did a, a midpoint analysis of where things stood with the trials, and they determined that the trials were going to fail, <laughs> that they yeah. were not going to meet the endpoints of clinical improvement. And so they actually stopped the trials halfway through. So this was obviously a big deal. It was kind of like this. They had invested a lot of money into this drug, a lot of time to kind of say that this, was, this drug was going to be added to the, the, the pile of Alzheimer's drugs that kind of showed promise, but didn't end up panning out to be anything. So time went on. And then about six or seven months later, Biogen kind of came back and said, well, wait a minute. We actually reevaluated some of the data from the Emerge study, uh, which was one of the two studies, and we actually think that one of the two groups in that study, the high dose group, actually is going to show some benefit. <laughs> so they, at that point, they had already stopped the trials; they had stopped enrolling patients, and everyone had kind of left the drug for dead. And then they came back, you know, seven months later and said, well, wait a minute, actually, we think maybe that one of the trials is actually going to meet the endpoint." So there were some jokes around that time, like uh, some memes came out, like because it was around Halloween, you know, like a skeleton hand, like coming out of the grave, <laughs> um, <laughs> that sort of thing, like the rise of this drug again that had been like deemed to be dead in the water. And so they, they said that basically, well, we think that this one positive result from one of the two trials is enough for us to take it to the fda and see if we can get it approved through this accelerated approval process because it you know alzheimer's disease is a very prevalent condition it's not a disease that we currently have a cure for so we're going to try to take it to the fda and see if we can get it approved in november of 2020 it went before this advisory committee the fda advisory committee which is a panel of kind of physicians who review this data and what they're looking at is a drug that has one study that shows no benefit at all in fact the high dose group of the of the engaged study actually really sort of did worse than placebo And they have this other similar study in uh, the eMERGE study that showed that, you know, well, we have this kind of like other result that, well, sort of a post hoc analysis after the trial had already been stopped and it showed maybe there was some clinical benefit. And so they look at this and they, they vote overwhelmingly, almost unanimously, that they don't think there's enough evidence to approve the drug. Because you know you have these conflicting results in in these two trials, and so we don't think the drug should be approved. My understanding is that in the past the FDA has rarely gone against the recommendations of this advisory panel, and so the feeling was that because the decision was so unanimous by the advisory panel against the drug's approval, that the drug was not going to be approved. So then. Fast forward all the way to June of this year. And sure enough, (laughs) at like 11 o'clock in the morning, (laughs) the FDA comes out and announces the drug is approved. And interestingly, it wasn't approved for like a narrow, nuanced approval indication. It wasn't like the FDA came out and said we are approving it for mild Alzheimer's disease or, you know, early Alzheimer's disease, although they've since come back and maybe amended that labeling, but they just approved it for Alzheimer's dementia, period, with no no nuance to it at all. And of course, there's been a lot of controversy since that time about how that came to be, you know, that there was people from the advisory panel that resigned yeah. over it. Um, there's been now an invest. there's like people from Congress calling for an investigation. The FDA is kind of investigating itself or is claiming that they're going to investigate themselves. You know, so there's a lot of concerns that have now swirled around it. and you know, unfortunately, from my perspective, I think it's the patients and the caregivers who are sort of going to get stuck in the middle and who are going to be the most confused now about is this an effective drug? Is this not an effective drug? And where do we go from here? So that, that's kind of the, the most abbreviated way I can tell you the story of this drug, which is which is kind of a, an insane story of how it came to be, but it's out there now. And it's uh, been under this uh, conditional approval process where the FDA has sort of said, well, we're going to approve it, but you have to do more studies on it. And, And no one really sort of knows what that means exactly. And so it's out there now. And as pharmacists and as physicians, you know, we have to kind of be aware of it because patients are going to families are going to be certainly asking about it. I got a I got a message from a family member literally the day after it was approved asking about it. So it's out there. So I think it's an important thing to kind of know about and be aware about at least the story of how it sort of came to be.
1: Yeah. And so there's a few, there's a lot there I want to dive into with that, obviously. But you know, the one thing that sticks out to me is this is almost like the opposite of like the COVID vaccine trials, right? Like they kept seeing a lot of good data early on, a lot of promise, a lot of promise. But they're like, no, we're gonna let the trials finish. No, we gotta let them finish. And meanwhile, the whole world is just like, sitting on pins and needles, like, is this going to work or not? This isn't the exact same with this one, but in this case, like they canceled the trial and they look back at it like, oh, maybe it'll work. Now we'll throw the one study to the FDA, not the other. Whereas the COVID trials, you know, it was just like, hold it back, hold it back, yeah. hold it back. They're done. Okay. Let somebody else look at the data. We're not going to look at our own data. Then we're going to share it with the FDA basically at the same time or whatever. And then you came up with this crazy result that's so black and white, 100% endorsed. And this one is the exact opposite where, like you said, it wasn't unanimous, but it was pretty close to unanimous, where the FDA's approval panel just came back and was like, no, this this does should not be approved. We don't recommend this and they went ahead and approved it anyway. So it's like the exact opposite of COVID the way I'm seeing it. Yeah,
0: I was going to say, I I think that what we all sort of learned in, you know, drug lit classes and pharmacy school and sort of in statistic classes and stuff like that, when we're sort of evaluating literature is anything that you're sort of, any conclusion you're drawing from kind of a post hoc analysis or post trial analysis at best is sort of hypothesis generating, Mm -hmm. you know, You shouldn't be drawing conclusions from that, like, oh, this drug works. I think that the feeling of a lot of us out there is that, at the very least, if there were conflicting results, rather than approving a drug, it should be, okay, there's maybe some indication that this dose in this one trial showed some clinical benefit, so maybe we need to go and design another trial in a certain way with this particular dose and do more studies. To try to resolve this conflict between the two studies because right. and, and try to get a clear answer of whether the drug works or whether it doesn't work. To your point, like they did with the COVID vaccine, where it was very clear, again, this is sort of the as, exact opposite. And now the drug's out there and people are left asking a lot of questions.
1: The part that drives me nuts, and this is kind of like twofold, is one, I have I've had a family member who's had this, and it's horrible. Like when you see him in that shape or you see him going down that road. It really is desperate, and you're sitting there looking at like fifty-six thousand. Okay, what's the copay? You know, you start asking these questions, like trying to mm-hmm. rationalize the treatment, because you're like, you know, if they cover it and it's a thousand bucks a year, and they've got the money, and it might give them two more years of qual- halfway quality or better quality life or whatever it is, I can now rationalize that, which is ridiculous because you're seeing like it's roughly fifty-six thousand dollars a year for just this drug. So, what mm-hmm. that breaks down to like four thousand dollars, a little bit over that a month, which is just astronomical. And, you know, but you're so desperate when you're in that situation. And this also reeks to me of like MBAs really leading healthcare. like the people who are running the company from the business side. are Like, well, we can make a profit because people are so damn desperate that we need to get this medication out. And then you're stuck with people like me me and you who are like, well, it's really not great. Like maybe if in this certain scenario. But then you're trying to make that recommendation to somebody who you know is desperate and like your heart is just breaking for him the whole time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like I said, I I see patients who have, you know, advanced dementia, anything from mild dementia to advanced dementia pretty much every day. And I I think there's, you know, certainly I would love for patients to come in and for me to be able to say, yep, here is a a cure for the disease. No, it's an infusion. It's a pill, whatever it might be for there to actually be a, a therapeutic option for it. But to your point, these families and these patients, they are obviously it is a horrible kind of disease that is often very protracted you know it's it's not something quick it lasts a number of years you know sometimes decades that families are dealing with this and so you're sort of marketing a drug to you know the most desperate type of patient and family and so they're of course going to be really clinging to anything that sounds like it might be promising You know, the $56,000 a year price tag. So as you alluded to, that is really just the cost of the drug. And so that doesn't really include that it's in a monthly infusion. And so you have to go to an infusion center. You have to have an infusionist. You know, there's labs. You know, everybody that was in the trial for this drug got an amyloid PET scan before they got the, the drug. And so that doesn't include the cost of that.
1: I don't even know how uh, much large, that is, but I'm sure it's expensive.
0: Yeah. So, th- so thousands of dollars, you know, at least. And then a large percentage of patients in these trials got, had a side effect that was called, the, the abbreviation is ARIA, A-R-I-A, it kind of stands for amyloid related imaging abnormalities, which was sort of like in most patients was kind of like edema or even some small hemorrhages in the brain. And most of the patients, it was asymptomatic, but it occurred so commonly that they recommended that basically patients have to have serial MRIs while they're on the drug to be able to monitor for it. And so I think that the labeling says something about getting an MRI you know, at seven months and 12 months and that sort of thing. And so it's not just the $56,000 of the drug, you're talking about a lot of imaging, a lot of lab tests, a lot of monitoring, a lot of follow-up doctor's appointments that go into that for a drug like we've talked about at length. That that really there's conflicting evidence as to whether or not is it is even effective.
1: Yeah, and so I'm just ballparking here, but you're talking probably closer to a hundred thousand. You look at time, stupid things like gas mileage that all add up and everything like that for one year for this drug that you mm-hmm. I, I don't even remember how long you have to be on it for, but I'm assuming for a longer period just to maintain it and to kind of put this in like layman's terms, this is is going to be very layman's terms, but like it's almost like measuring the horsepower in a car instead of how fast it gets down the track to see if it's even effective. You're like, great, it works on the amyloid protein. We've been saying this forever, that this this could be the thing that we need to cure it, but you didn't actually measure the end result of did it cure it.
0: Exactly, yes. So there was a great article in The Atlantic not that long ago that talked about the cost of this drug and that this drug, if even like half the patient's in the United States who have Alzheimer's disease where there's like basically 6 million people in the United States who have Alzheimer's disease. Wow. If even half of them were treated with this drug, the cost of that, the cost of this drug alone would exceed the cost of all other drugs that are covered <laughs> through Medicare Part D.
1: <laughs> oh my god. That's insane. So,
0: you know, it would be like hundreds, hundred plus billion dollars for this drug alone you know, which exceeds the cost of every other drug that's covered under Medicare Part D. So it is, a, it is an extremely just like the, the individual cost of the drug every year is a lot, but also, you know, the, the cost on the healthcare system system is, is immense. And so I'm not really sure how and how Medicare is going to handle that, because, again, this drug is it is going to be used primarily almost exclusively by patients who are on Medicare. And yeah. so how the, a Medicare system is going to be able to handle that is, I think, still yet to be determined.
1: Yeah. And just for listeners to note, it's July 13th as we're recording this. And as of right now, Medicare has come out and said that they're reviewing this and it's under review. And they haven't made any statement either which way, if they're going to cover it. So I think that's key for context in case by the time I drop this what that changes, I will try and go back and edit this. But either way, I think that that is a huge call out there is. You know, this is could be a huge burden on taxpayers because this is mostly a government-funded drug. When you look at the demographics yes. of it, now there could be your outliers, but you know, somebody who would just straight up pay cash for this if it wasn't covered. You're looking at people who are like in those multi, like tens of millions of dollars in their bank account, which a lot of those people are pretty pretty fiscally smart. They might say, you know what, if it's going to give me six months and it's not going to be that great of quality, I'd rather go to somebody in my family than it does to this drug and this drug company. So that's a whole other discussion we could talk about with people having medical directives. But that's super important (laughs) with a drug like this.
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely.
1: So the $56,000 price tag for just the drug, obviously you added there's so many more costs What was like your knee jerk or like your thoughts on this drug when you saw that? Like, what was your what was your gut?
0: Well, I I knew that if the drug was approved, people were going to be seeking it out, you know, because I just know the patient population that I take care of. And I use (laughs) Prevagen as a great example of this, actually. And Prevagen is you turn on the TV and it is man, it is out there and (laughs) it is on every, every commercial and that sort of thing. And if you actually go on the you know the Prevagen website and you sort of look at the quote-unquote data that's behind it, it's obviously you know, not very good science. And, but I, a lot of patients come into my office on Prevagen because they see yeah. it on television and they think that it applies to them and they think it's going to help them. And they're willing to pay $50, $60 a month for a bottle of Prevagen because they think that it might help them. They're, they're thinking is there's no cure for this disease I have, like, you know, I need to exhaust all possible options to try to, you know, help my symptoms or help slow things down or, or whatever. So, you know, I knew, that the, I knew that the drug was going to be highly sought after if the FDA approved it and that, you know, the, the, the average person was not going to be aware of that very long story that I told about how the drug came to be (laughs) and all the controversy surrounding it and that sort of stuff and that there's conflicting results. And they're just gonna see, oh, the FDA approved a new drug for Alzheimer's disease, I need to get it. And that's pretty much exactly what has happened so far you know, the other thing that I uh, realistically found disappointing was that the Alzheimer's Association, who I'm, I very much support and refer a lot of my patients to the Alzheimer's Association for their res- for their resources, came out strongly in favor of this drug. You know, I think that the whole marketing campaign that involved the Alzheimer's Association and certainly Biogen and that sort of stuff, I think that this and even, you know, news media and stuff, I think their coverage of it. Oftentimes has been that, you know, oh, the FDA approved this drug, It you know, it must work. And I think now, after the fact, unfortunately, there's a lot more news coming out about, you know, there's a lot of skepticism and there's a lot of controversy. But it's sort of like the cat's out of the bag now. (laughs) People aren't hearing that part as much. My initial my initial thought was this is not going to be a drug that I recommend to my patients. And it hasn't been. And the patients who have asked about it, I haven't recommended them. And I've tried my best to explain the reasons for that. And so that was sort of my initial knee-jerk reaction, and and my hope is that over time, sort of the FDA, as this drug gets put more and more under the microscope, that perhaps it gets dialed back a little bit, the enthusiasm, because I, I worry about moving forward, you know, unrestricted, essentially.
1: Yeah. And, and so listeners, the reason why I obviously ask that is many times as a pharmacist, you know, people come to us with these questions or have it about that, uh, about topics like this. And Prevagen is a great one. I have actually, when I worked retail, had a guy who would come in and every month he would asked where the Prevagen was. I'm like, right there, it's aisle 15, top shelf. Okay. You know, walks over there and grabs it. But like every month he came and asked that question. And what I think is so important here is you see both sides of this in our role as a pharmacist and in your role as a geriatrician. And so this is one of those things that, you know, when people come to people come to us and ask us about this, I have had people, I actually didn't work retail very long from the time this was approved till now, but I had people coming and asking about it. Like, what do you think? What about this? I read about this and I'm like, you know, I wouldn't recommend it if it were me, but you do need to have to go talk to your doctor about it and everything like that. Like kind of like the the thing we have to put on there to kind of you know cover our ass, if you will. But you're somebody who sees both sides of that, and you're still saying, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, maybe we could f- try and find a, the niche patient in there, but they're going to be the f- by far outlier when it comes to a drug like this. So that way we pharmacists can have that conversation when people come in or we see those people who are on, like you said, Nemenda, Dinepazil, whatever it is. We can have that conversation with a little bit of the insight that you're sharing with this. So I think that's important. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think you know, as as you well know, that pharmacists are the most accessible healthcare professional, and <laughs> you got, you know, yeah. the, especially the retail pharmacist, yep. oftentimes is sort of just the go-to medical professional for any type of medical question oftentimes not even necessarily drug related true and so you know even though this is an infusion i think that there's a good chance that pharmacists out in the community family members and patients are going to be asking opinions on this drug and so i, I think it is important to you know at least be aware of the controversy and and understand you know some of the risks and some of the why why there's a, a, some strong opposition to this drug
1: yeah, it really is one of those things, and I, I can see it from both sides because I have had family members and even family friends who've been in that situation. One was even a NASA engineer. You know, like talk about a mentally stimulating job, and to see him completely become vegetative because of Alzheimer's disease, it's it's horrible. And I would see where his family would be like, "Whatever it costs, we don't care. Mm-hmm. We want him back." Yeah. And, but you're looking at it, just going, "Oh, I understand that, but like, don't." <laughs> at the same time.
0: Yeah, and I think that it's important to, to reiterate that. You know, I think that, that those of us who are skeptical of the drug are not, you know, like, oh, the the drug doesn't work at all. We should, you know, throw it in the trash and that sort of thing. I, I think what most of the people who are sort of on kind of the, the skeptical side of it are saying that before the drug was approved, perhaps it would have been more prudent to actually do a you know, well-designed, randomized controlled trial with the dosing that was done in the study that had this somewhat positive result and see if we can replicate those results, you know, see if those results are true. And if they actually, if it actually does show benefit and we can clear up the, you know, the conflict between the two trials, then that's great. You know, I think those of us who treat patients who have dementia would be, would love a treatment that actually has shown consistently to be really, really effective. And so I just I think that most of us are kind of on the side of things where if there's conflict between data, then it might have been prudent before we just sent the drug out onto the market to clear up the controversy and see see what actually comes of it, as opposed to kind of just sending it out there into the world for, you know, for providers to do with it, make their own interpretations, basically.
1: Yeah. And we've all seen with COVID that in every profession, there's a couple bad providers who are willing to do things, so we'll just leave that where it is. But it's it kind of stinks because it has turned political. Like the FDA really did themselves no favors here. Now, like you said, Congress is looking into it. Now you have this thing where the uh, the panel said, no, we don't approve it, but then they approved it. So it makes you wonder, like, who's throwing money where? Like it just reeks of, like, political dirtiness everywhere you look, which is why we're on the podcast talking about it. So. <laughs>
0: and i think that i think that one of the concerns that has been expressed by congress and either actually, even actually i believe the, the leader of the fda kind of said this as well is that one of the concerns is that this drug approval has sort of undermined confidence in the independence of the fda yep and that's part of the reason that they're going through with some of the investigations to try to make sure there was no sort of wrongdoing or or overstepping of bounds between the what's supposed to be the very independent fda and the pharmaceutical companies.
1: Yes. Yeah, and you know, just looking at government agencies, we've seen that with Boeing and some of their jet issues. Obviously that's very graphic and makes all the news headlines. This isn't as graphic, but when you look at the dollars involved, it's it's up there with what we're talking about. So I mean it's pretty crazy right. to see that.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: All right. So I can't let you go before asking you some of the questions I ask everybody in the podcast. But before I do that, I want to thank you for one, having your awesome unique degrees. I think it's really cool. I'm, I'm a little bit jealous that you do just because I think that you're in such a cool spot when it comes to stuff like this and just practice in general, because they both make you better in both realms. The pharmacy degree makes you better medical doctor and then being a medical doctor helps you with understanding the pharmacies of it a little bit more too. So thanks for putting that much dedication into the profession.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like I always tell people, the, uh, the the dual degrees was not really the original plan. Yeah, um, I remember those it days. Just sort of, <laughs> it just sort of worked out that way. But, you know, I do think that, you know, certainly I think the time spent in, in pharmacy school, you know, and, and actually, you know, working for a couple of years, a, a few years as a pharmacist, you know, it, it does give me a, a unique kind of perspective, especially when it comes to topics like these yeah, no regrets from my vantage point, but it, did take a, it took a few years longer and a few dollars more to get to the <laughs> career that I ended up with, but but uh, it worked out well in the end, so.
1: Yeah, no, I totally get that. Anyway, hop into the two questions that uh, I ask everybody. If you could change one thing in pharmacy that isn't a law, what would it be?
0: So I, I will tell you that I knew that these, these sort of law questions and stuff were coming. Although I'm uh, super uh, deft in the uh, the pharmacy <laughs> law and, and that sort of stuff as I once maybe was, you know, 10 years ago. I think that um, just kind of as a general rule, I think that it is and I actually I'm not even as up to date as I should be on sort of the whole provider status and that sort of stuff in pharmacy. I, I'm not sure kind of like where things always stand with that. But you know, I do think, you know, I'm a big advocate for sort of pharmacy and pharmacists having more of a direct role in, in clinical patient care. You know, I think that because I do, you know, having gone through school and uh, pharmacy school and having worked uh, as a pharmacist and also having seen the other side of sort of what is the curriculum in medical school and what is the training in residency and that sort of thing, you know, I think that pharmacists do have a really, really unique skill set that can be, could be, I think, utilized even more robustly in actual clinical patient care and like sort of chronic disease state management. And I think it's probably underutilized, you know, things like diabetes management and hypertension management and lipid management and that sort of stuff. I do think there is a, there there could be a more significant role for for pharmacists in that regard. Um, I think just like we sort of talked about before, where the just a, you know pharmacists are the most accessible healthcare professional that we have, and one of the most trusted healthcare professionals. I do think that having pharmacists be able to to have more even a role as sort of a provider in terms of chronic disease state management, I think would absolutely benefit the population. Not really a law, not really like a, a a non-law thing, but but anyway, that that's sort of my, kind of my thoughts on it.
1: Okay, so something like provider status being implemented would, in your eyes, be a good thing because it helps free you up from some of your time from your refill requests and not just that, but also like your managing of just like common things that really aren't super complicated or maybe need the specialty that you have.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I just I think that you know it's difficult. It's getting more and more difficult for patients to get into appointments with their primary care doctor to have access to their primary care doctor and, and that sort of thing. And I, I think that in the spirit of kind of like access to care and, and having pa- patients be able to accessible, but also very knowledgeable care of some of the chronic disease state, things like diabetes, hypertension, that sort of stuff. I really think like provider status is, is a really, really important thing, you know, moving forward in pharmacy.
1: Great. Yeah, no, I, we've had a lot of people on the podcast and I think it's cool. that You've seen both sides and you still support that. So if you could change one law in pharmacy or make a law in pharmacy or whatever, federal or statewide, what would it be and why?
0: So that's a good question. I would say that, and this is a, sort of a, a half-joking law, but I guess it's, <laughs> it, to me it's really not a joke. It should be. I think it should be mandated that at retail pharmacists be able to take a lunch break. <laughs> I think where that's a good the, one. Uh, where the you know the you know the pharmacy closes down. And they can actually take a break and uh, and sit down and even if it's a half an hour where they don't have to have clinical responsibilities or phone calls or that sort of thing. And I and correct me if I'm wrong, but some pharmacies do do that, correct? Right, like yeah, some uh, do.
1: Walgreens expanded recently, although execution is a different story.
0: Yes. So, you know, I just always thought about my my pharmacy colleagues who, you know, were working at whatever retail pharmacy they might be working at and they're telling me about these 14-hour shifts, 14-hour weekend shifts and they haven't <laughs> sat down and they haven't like eaten lunch and, you know, they're filling hundreds of scripts per day or checking them and that sort of thing and I just think that like it would be nice if there was a universal law that said, you know, what you're in a very stressful clinical environment that actually does require a doctorate-level degree and requires a lot of brain power. Maybe we should mandate that you get 30 minutes where you get to kind of like check out and yeah. you know recalibrate your brain for the safety of the patients um, and the safety of the families. You know, just the same way that we mandate break time for any other type of employee. Yeah. So that would be. Uh, obviously not a current law that could be changed, but I think it would be a worthwhile new law.
1: You know, and to throw it back at you too, I think that, that should all should go in place for medical doctors. <laughs> not sure how that works in an ER setting or in a surgery setting. Maybe right. it might be the outliers, but like, you know, I've seen doctors who are, again, are pulling similar shifts to pharmacists and there's so much pride in both professions of like how much abuse you can take, whether it be through residency or on the job or whatever. And I think we really just need to end that freaking culture like that we're both the same age we're both millennials but like i think it's like our generation is finally realizing like that's not the right answer i don't know what the right answer yeah. is but that's not it
0: yeah and and i agree medical professional burnout is an absolutely very real thing you know in yes. both in both pharmacy and medicine we as a society are not doing a very good job of combating that and so my pharmacy lunch hour law would be a very good first step <laughs> i think in getting us on the right track
1: yes wholeheartedly agree with that well hey dr stroud thanks again for coming on the podcast and you've been an awesome guest. and maybe i'll have you on some other time just because i think you provide an awesome knowledge set with the professions
0: yeah i would be happy to happy to be on you know eric i i, I appreciate you uh, reaching out to me and um, giving me the opportunity to talk and hopefully uh, in, inform people uh, a little bit better and I, I, I thank you thank you for having me on i'm happy to come back anytime
1: yeah thanks again and listeners if you can you can reach out to jared um i think he's on linkedin if i remember correctly but you can reach out to him or reach out to me and i can connect you with him. i don't want to inundate him with any more stuff because burnout is a real thing and as soon as you put mb by your name it's probably worse than farm d for questions so uh, but but as always thanks for listening to the political pharmacist podcast your prescription for pharmacy and politics